This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is day two of the three mass vaccination sites in Toronto, and I have to say, seems to be going pretty well. But before we give ourselves too big a pat on the back, I checked the stats, and as of yesterday, Canada is 48th in the world in total vaccinations. It's been a couple of days since the Premier urged all of the local authorities to get people over 80 done before the long lineup of priority groups also entitled to get their shots now. Now, I'm not sure that's happening in Toronto. Also, we've been hearing that Zoomers between the ages of 75 and 80 can begin registering for their shots in York Region. Those shots will start being administered next week. When will we be getting to that point here in Toronto? Mayor John Tory is on the line for one of our periodic check-ins, and he joins me now. Hello, Mayor. Hello, Libby. Uh, so it's day two of the vaccination sites. Uh, as far as I can see, seems to be going pretty well. What do you think? Yes, I think so. There were a couple of little hiccups yesterday. Uh, when I say little hiccups, uh, where there wasn't adequate signage to point to an accessibility elevator for people who might have had trouble navigating a ramp at the convention center and things like that, that we remedied very quickly. But the bottom line is we'd set ourselves up based on the supply available to do 450, um, uh, sorry, 350, no, 450, 450. have these inoculations at each of the three clinics that are open. And we did those. And, uh, you know, people seem to come for their appointments. There were a few that didn't and a few that showed up without an appointment. But, you know, these are the kinds of things you expect in these big efforts. And we're hoping to continue to wrap this up subject to supply being available, a vaccine, and uh, get as many people done in the 80-plus uh, group as possible. And I will just say, I really hope people listening who either are themselves someone born before 19, uh, in 1941 or earlier, or who know someone, a parent, a friend, um, please encourage them to register. Uh, everybody tells me it's actually relatively easy to register um, if you can do it online. Otherwise, you can phone. Um, and and we really want that. people during this window when they can have exclusive uh, access to these immunization clinics uh, to get vaccinated. So that's what I wanted to check. So uh, are you saying that right now uh, you aren't vaccinating paramedics and police and chiropractors, that it's just people over 80? Yeah, it's very interesting because across the city, people sort of misunderstand what's going on in Toronto. But I think today the number is 21 different clinics are in place in different hospitals and around the community. But the three that we have open, the three mass immunization clinics, which are in uh, Scarborough, downtown and in the West End, the Northwest End at the Congress Center, they are dedicated exclusively to people 80 years of age and older. And uh, so those appointments that are available, there's 133,000 appointments available totally between now and mid-April. April. Those are for people 80 plus, and they're not mixed in with other uh, people. Some of the other people that have to get done, the first responders, of which Toronto has way more than any other city in the in the country, uh, those are being done in the other places like the hospitals and like some of the community settings. Yeah, th- I mean, uh, they that's right. And uh, a lot of them were done before the older people. And, and my point has always been, yes, those people put themselves at risk for us, but uh, if you want to prevent death and serious illness, the one factor is age. But I'm very happy to hear that people over 80 are getting done. I know of a couple, uh, but uh, they're still, I mean, uh, just an email that I, I got today before the show. Uh, be sure to tell us why my younger, healthier husband gets his tomorrow and I am eight months post chemo and haven't gotten a call yet. And this is both people who are 80 plus? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. She says her husband is younger than her. I would assume she's probably not over 80, but is post-chemo. Yeah, I'm, so, I, well, I'm not trying yeah. to pass the buck on this, but the priority list uh, yeah. was t- set by the province of Ontario, so we follow it. And so the groups that have been prioritized so far, as you were pointing out, are the first responders who are themselves exposed to a lot of people when they do CPR and perform various uh, functions on the on the ground, and then the people who are 80 plus. And uh, so 
but and even within those categories, the priorities are set by a provincial list that we follow. Um, and I think they have been making some attempt to take people, for example, who are on chemo or otherwise have chronic illnesses, especially those who are confined to home, and to have them uh, prioritized. But um, you know, there are some things that are cropping up uh, that we're having to deal with, such as, for example, I will just tell you, we're getting a fair number of calls from uh, seniors who are housebound. You know, they just can't go out. Um, for physical or other reasons. And, you know, we, we have a system that helps with them, but it, we need to, um, you know, refine that to make sure that we can answer the need uh, of people like that. But for the moment, what we're really doing is focusing on the mass immunization clinics because there are, there are roughly 130,000 people 80 years of age and older in the city of Toronto. So it's a big number for us to uh, vaccinate. And we're focusing on those people because they were indeed seen always as the top group by the provincial priority list. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to Dr. Samir Sinha the other day. He's working on something to deal with people who are housebound. And uh, my doctor from the Forest Hill Family Health uh, Center, and he's over 80. Now, he this I need to drill down a bit more on this, people. But uh, he said that they have contracted with Sunnybrook to go and uh, immunize the people who can't leave their homes. I didn't get details on that. I'm going to try to get details details on that. And again, I've said one of the things that that drives me a bit nuts is that we're so good at pilot projects and not uh, scaling them up. And, and uh, Mayor, I mean, there, there were pilot projects taking vaccines to people in seniors' buildings, living in the community, uh, in, uh, municipal buildings. That were very well, successful. And indeed, Libby, hundreds of people have been immunized as a result of those pilot projects. And so the, the challenge, though, is, and it's not as easy as it sounds sometimes to take a pilot project that might have done, you know, five buildings or one neighborhood and scale it up to a city of three million people. But that's exactly what we're working on now. And you'll find in the end that it is places like Sunnybrook that help us with that mobile. Uh, and we're, we're, we're probably going to use our EMS people as well, the paramedics, to do the same thing. But, you know, there's the, the, some of the kinds of complications they face include the sort of transportability of the vaccine um, and that kind of thing. And it sounds like it's a simple matter, but it isn't. And so they're, they're sorting it out as quickly as possible, recognizing what you said, which is that the 80 plus group are top priority on the provincial list for a reason. And we want that group to get done as quickly as possible. And that's the point of my mentioning, though, there are a lot of those people that don't need this help. Um, you know, they're very yeah. fit, able, spry people. And they are the ones that many of whom have not yet made a reservation to have an appointment at the immunization clinics. It's easy. If you saw the people on TV or on radio on Zoomer, you know, they are people who said, no, it was worked well, easy. Once they got there, they just went through and got their needle and that was that. So we want people to go on to the website, toronto.ca slash COVID-19 or use the phone center uh, to book an appointment because that's the most important thing that has to get done. And there are appointments available. It's an easy thing to do. And how, do you know how the phone center is going? I have to check it recently. But My it's... understanding is fine. Um, and again, I'll mention it. I know it's hard when it's radio, but it's one eight eight eight. Nine 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 six four eight eight. I'll repeat that one more time. One eight 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 nine 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 six four eight eight. And my understanding is it's it's pretty good. You know, as far as these call centers go that are serving like fourteen million people, they're actually doing a pretty good job of dealing with the calls. And once they get you on the phone, booking the appointment is actually very easy once they determine that you're qualified, which simply means nineteen forty one or earlier, and you have a health card, and you have either a phone number or an email address or both. Okay, uh, I will post all that information. Um, before I move on to the next question, just Robin, who sent that particular email, if you're listening, you said you're eight months post-chemo. So I remember when I was post-chemo, and I don't know what it was, something came up, and, and I asked my oncologist, am I immunocompromised, or am I like everyone else? And he said, you're like everyone else, and it was a lot sooner than I had expected. So, um, you know, I... Uh, I hope you get your shot soon, but uh, you may be, you know, getting back to normal after that amount of time. I wish you all the best. Me too. Uh, Thank you. Um, So as I mentioned, people in York region between the ages of 75 and 80, and I have to admit I have a few of those in my family, uh, they can register for shots next week. When are we going to get to that point here in Toronto? I don't know. Uh, the time you do that is, uh, you know, when you have, uh, you know, made substantial progress with the ones that are 80 plus. And in our case, we had to, and you pointed this out earlier on, 
uh, we had a large number of first responders and healthcare workers to do. For example, half of all the doctors in Ontario live in Toronto, and so they got their shots here uh, in many cases. And so it meant we had to get through those people as well as getting a good start on the 80 plus. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then our 80 plus population, as I mentioned, is huge. It's 130,000 people. So um, I would think you'll see us, uh, you know, looking at other ages of people uh, when we feel we've got to a certain critical mass of 80 plus that have been done. And that's why I'm encouraging people, um, you know, to book appointments. Well, you mentioned, I think, that there'd been uh, 22,000 appointments booked. Uh, there's a lot more people yet to book. And so I hope people will either go online or pick up the phone or have somebody help them with it uh, to get booked because we want to make sure we get that most at-risk population, as you pointed out, done first and then move down in age uh, from there. Yeah, and, and uh, that population and a lot of our listeners are probably the most compliant the most shut in, but I have to say um, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of the experts have declared that we are in a third wave. Uh, I'm just honestly, I'm, I'm looking at some of the emails I got before the show and some of them directing directed at you. And it, it's pretty vitriolic people. Uh, some people, I think probably a lot of them uh, are kind of not willing to continue to accept restrictions. And I'm thinking this is, this is no matter w- what the evidence says. Like, how are you dealing with that? I mean, I, you know, was well, one of them, you know, you've decimated a great city, yeah. uh, open up or lock down forever, stuff like that. I mean, there's no question there's been some, uh, you know, uh, damage done to the economy in the city and to individual businesses uh, in the cause of a greater a greater goal, which was to preserve public health and to stop the loss of life that was going on and to protect the health care system. And I, you know, I, I just say for as one person involved in the decision making, not by myself, but I've been involved with others in making these decisions, we've done our best to try and achieve uh, the right balance. I mean, let's remember um, we have lost in the city of Toronto alone. An inconceivable number of people have we've lost lives. Twenty six hundred, uh, I think it's now at twenty seven hundred. Uh, there's never been anything that's happened, um, you know, within the boundaries of the city. There have been losses during wars and so on, but there's never been anything that's happened like this where we've lost twenty seven hundred people in a year. And so, uh, if you want to stop that loss of life, which I think has to be your foremost responsibility when you're in a position like mine or the medical officer, uh, then you take the steps that you believe are necessary. And so, when somebody says the city has been decimated, this is a, a you know, as usual, a gross overstatement that people use when they're, you know, exaggerating these things. I mean that there has been a, 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 a very heavy toll taken on business and on the sort of um, the well-being of people in business and so on. But at the same time, uh, I guess the decimation that I would make reference to first would be the 2,700 lives that are lost, all of whom are grandmothers and grandfathers and fathers and brothers and sisters of people who live in the city. And so my job was to minimize that. And um, I would say the steps taken have been, <clears throat> pardon me, no more in excess really than most of what's been done around the world and including in other parts of North America. And I think the results we've had, while it's been tragic, at 2,700 deaths, this is kind of half the death rate of a lot of cities in the United States where they chose not to do these things. So Look, the objective now is to try to safely, you know, get the city back on its feet and get things reopened. And that's what I'm focused on. And so the news stories of yesterday didn't have me advocating more close downs, but rather had me advocating some cautious measures that we could take to try to be safe and be healthy, but at the same time, start to get things open again so that some of that damage could be reversed. Okay, I'm I'm going to take a call from Sharon because she has a question that I think you might be able to answer because I can't. Hi, Sharon. Hey, hi, how are you? Fine. So what's you have a question about the Scarborough Center? Yes, I did register an over 80, and I asked the person on the phone, you know, where exactly in the Scarborough Town Center do we go? And she had no idea, and it's such a massive place, as is the convention center. There's no details on, like, you know, north, south, east, west, what entrance, that kind of thing. Mayor Tory, can you answer that? I can certainly answer because it was a commonly asked question in regard to the Scarborough uh, Town Center and the Scarborough Town Center landmark that you go to and you'll immediately then see the clinic is the Cineplex. There's a, a big theater complex there with the usual big garish lights and signs on it. And mm-hmm. if you go there, that's the parking lot that's right in front of the clinic. And the clinic use is in what was the old Sears store for people who know them all that well. But otherwise, the Sears store signage has been taken away, but the Cineplex is still there. And so that's where it is. And there's a lot of signage. We 
we, we one of the lessons we learned yesterday was we needed more signage around the big mall so that people who drove in one entrance or another would would know immediately which way to turn. And we've I think fixed that. But the landmark is the Cineplex uh, complex there. Okay, Sharon, uh, I'm glad that you had a chance to ask that. Yes, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, Sharon. All right. Thanks for answering that, Mayor. And uh, just before we go, I have to ask, we are on the radio, but so uh, what's your hair doing today? Well, it's doing about the same. I haven't had a cut. I try to think of when the last time was I had a cut. Whenever the barbershops were last open, I had a cut. Might have been in December, I guess. I don't know. But uh, it's getting longer by the day. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I just deal with it. Some people have said, why didn't I have my wife cut it or somebody like that? But I said, then they would think I went for one of those kind of secret, you know, appointments or had somebody come to my house to cut it. And I don't want them to think that I'm not following the rules. So I am following the rules. And some people think it actually looks better. <laughs> I have no opinion on this. Other people think it looks worse, uh, but it is what it is. I'm just glad I have hair. Well, you know, I've seen some tweets where you sort of said, don't make fun of me for my hair. And I think that's what on the internet is called a humble brag. You know, you've got a pretty uh, good head of hair for a guy your age. It's still there and uh, doesn't show any signs of falling out. So we'll, we'll, we'll consider this a problem worth having and uh, we'll get a haircut when the time uh, permits, when, you know, when the circumstances permit. Okay, Mayor Tory, thanks so much for being thanks with for us. The, thanks for having me on. And remember, 1941 or earlier, please uh, get, get signed up for vaccination as soon as you can. Okay, thank thanks. you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have the head of the science advisory table, Dr. Peter Uni, with us. So if you have questions about how to stay safe, there's a lot of stuff coming up. We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. All week we've been reporting the metrics, which point to the fact that we were in a third wave. Some of the experts have confirmed that that's their opinion. True, not all authorities agree. And it comes amid a clamor for easing restrictions. And just as we are heading into important holidays for many Ontarians, Passover next weekend, Easter the weekend after that, not to forget Nowruz, the Persian New Year this Saturday. So how to stay safe. But I also want to ask what is allowable in the circumstances, especially for people who may have had one shot already. Uh, I'm going to give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory table. Dr. Uni, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So uh, I was just looking at the reproduction number. Uh, It is still above one. That means that one infected person infects more than one other person. Uh, But it still seems a little bit better than, say, it was on Monday. Am I reading that right? Um, I think you're making the mistake that many do that you're actually looking at the reproduction number of um, the old variants and the new variants of concern combined, which doesn't give you, uh, unfortunately, the message that is important right now. We have two pandemics. One is under control, luckily, that's uh, with the uh, old-fashioned traditional variants that are relatively slowly transmitting, even though we didn't look at uh, at the time a year ago, now we know. And then there's new variants of concern that have uh, transmission uh, of roughly 40% more than the old ones. If you then now split this and just look at the reproduction number of the old variants, you see, oh, we have that under control. That's okay. It's below one. But if you look at the new one, by no means we have it under control. They continue to skyrocket upwards. What is the word? I don't know. Uh, and and uh, that's the challenge that we're facing. That's also why we're so confident that this is not just a fluke, you know, not just an undulation or so. It's definitely the third wave why it's caused by the new variants of concern, unfortunately. Um, do you have a number for the reproduction rate for the new variants? Uh, yes, 
if you bear with me, I can look up the number that is about to be posted in oh. a moment. Just oh. uh, give me a moment. Sure. I'll give you... I can come back to, uh, to you in a moment and oh. just we can continue talking. By then, my uh, sheets will be open. Okay, so yes, we we, uh, we should continue talking. Uh, that's interesting. I've, I've never quite... Uh, heard it put that way with with separate separate numbers for the spread. Um, I can tell you that that personally, uh, I'm confident that however long it takes to get a shot, uh, I can ward off and stay safe and not get the first one. But uh, but I do find the prospect of those variants a little bit scary because I'm I'm not even really sure you know how to protect your you know myself yeah. or my family. So first, to go back to your question before, um, so what will be posted on our website? So just go to the Science Advisory Tables website. You'll find the dashboard, which is, uh, I hope, sort of informative. Yeah. You will find that the reproduction number for the new variants of concern are currently at 1.34. That's about to be posted for today, whereas for the, uh, for the early variants, uh, that are, uh, you know, the, the, the old ones that we have known, known for years, it's at 0 0.9 below 1. And that's the challenge now. So, you know, when we look at that, the estimated number of cases today um, for the uh, new variants of concern uh, are above 800. And for the early variants, the old ones are uh, around 700. And now the tendency rate is just increasing for the new variants and uh, the old variants are stagnating or even going down. Okay, and let me just to, to clarify that, that reproduction rate uh, means that for every 100 people who are infected, and they will infect 134 people. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, you're saying that's perfectly. On average, they will will indeed infect 134 people. It's important to notice that it's on average. We know that this uh, virus is uh, quite paradoxical in many respects, and we know that a lot of people luckily don't infect many, but others then in unfortunate circumstances, you know, the super spreader events uh, infect a lot. Therefore, everybody can contribute on doing the right thing by not infecting anybody and by all means just avoiding super spreader events from happening. Okay. And and um, an another thing that I heard the other day was the way it was expressed was that the numbers are doubling in four days. So how is that working based on this? No, it's not four days. Luckily, oh my God, if it would be four days, then I then we would be in real trouble. It's about uh, eight, nine days that the numbers for the new variants of concern are doubling. And the more dominant they get, they're currently, according to our estimates, at 54% of all cases, the more you will see that. That's the problem. So the longer this takes, the more the trajectory of the new variants will basically be the trajectory of the entire pandemic. Okay. And do you have a sense or any... Um, evidence about are, are they spreading in certain geographic areas more than others or in certain work settings more than others? What, what, what more can you tell us? So first of all, it's predominantly, not, not exclusively, but predominantly a problem of the Golden Horseshoe, you know. So Simcoe, Muskoka, Durham, Toronto, uh, Peel, York, Guelph, they all, Niagara, Halton, um, Hamilton, they all are above, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 percent. You know, in Toronto, we're certainly way above 50 percent now. And um, Peterborough right now is still struggling. We're aware of the situation there. You know, there was oh. um, other places uh, are luckily a lot less uh, in the read so far which is great news for these places. And we try to keep it as long as we can this way. That's the point. If we are delayed, you know, in places like Ottawa, where we are perhaps only at 20% now, right now, we just, the estimates are just coming in actually this afternoon that we can model that better also on a local level. But, uh, but if they're only at 20%, this means they have perhaps two weeks more time than we here in Toronto have. And right now with the race, you know, vaccine against variants of concern, these two weeks could be tremendously important. So we better keep it that way, that parts of the province stay as safe as they can regarding the new variants. In Toronto and Durham, etc., we're just in trouble a bit, but we can deal with this too. Okay. And uh, again, are there any particular settings where the new variants are spreading faster than others, like certain workplaces or... Um, anywhere? 
look, they're basically behaving as the old ones, only that they're more tedious, they transmit a bit easier. What this actually means in detail, we haven't fully understood yet. Preliminary data indicate that the risk is probably more pronounced, especially before we all get symptomatic or if we stay asymptomatic. And that's, again, one of the challenges. That's one of the challenges of this entire pandemic. You remember, compared with SARS in 2003, the reason that we got SARS under control was people only got infectious when they became symptomatic. And then you can control that. These ones are buggers. You know, most of the infections or many of the infections happen when neither you nor I have a symptom, even so we carry the disease. And that's why this is all so deceiving. That's why if, if I see, you know, people just let down their guard uh, on the street or somewhere else, it really pains me. Every single one who lets down their guard just may potentially cost contribute to the transmission chain. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe what you're saying there is wear your mask, even if you're on the street, even if you don't see other people on the street? No, not at all. Have fun outside um, when you're on your own or just with the people who live in their household. Forget about masks outside. The problem is only when we need to get closer to each other, closer than two meters, then uh, be careful. So the first thing is always the first line of defense is be outside, period. The second line of defense is stay two meters apart from everybody who is not part of your household. Gone. Masks are only the third line of defense. If you absolutely cannot avoid to be outside or to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if you, if you absolutely cannot avoid to be inside or if you have to be closer than two meters outside, then please wear a mask. But don't use masks as an excuse to come closer or to start to, you know, uh, mingle with other people inside. That's really not what you should do, especially not right now. We really don't know yet, you know, all the risk settings, what is changing exactly. The only thing we know also from the from the nursing home outbreaks that we had and from outbreaks in, uh, in apartment buildings, etc. If you let down your guard, then you're being punished more in the presence of the new variants than before. That's for sure the case. Okay, I'm going to take a call uh, from Brian and Vaughn. He's got a question. Hello, Brian. Hi. I don't. I don't know if uh, this expert can answer this, but what's his opinion on waiting the f four months between vaccines? And secondly, why didn't they? They because uh, I'm eligible for the the, Astra, the whatever the. Astra one is for the 61 to 64 or 60 64. Why wouldn't they give that to frontline workers? Imagine most of them are under 60 65. Uh, uh, it was a, I, I, I'll take a stab at the second one. And Dr. Uni answered the first one. The AstraZeneca, that was just a, a, a pilot project with a relatively small number of doses. And I think that what they were testing was, uh, how well it went getting shots in a pharmacy or a doctor's office. There's a big shipment of AstraZeneca supposedly coming next week. And, and I haven't heard how they intend to deploy that. I, they're probably working on that right now. But uh, Dr. Uni, he wants to know about the four-month interval between doses. Yeah. So the first thing which is important is that we now have some flexibility, which is absolutely justified that we have that. You need to be aware of the, uh, the schedules, the vaccination schedules in the big trials were based on very arbitrary decisions of the, of the uh, uh, drug producers, of the vaccine producers. And they had to come up with something and they just had a schedule of, you know, a second dose after three weeks or after four weeks. From many, va many vaccines, we know that... Um, the longer you wait, the better the booster actually works and the better the immune response is. This may not necessarily be the case for Pfizer and Moderna because it's a novel technology, but it, uh, it's probably the case, for instance, for the AstraZeneca vaccine. You mean this um, Pfizer is a new technology? Exactly. Pfizer, is a mod Pfizer and Moderna is a modern technology, a new technology, and this is really... Uh, quite a game changer also in our understanding of how vaccines actually work, you know, the timeframes, etc. So right now, what we just need to be aware of, the most important thing is to get as many needles in as many people's arms as possible, of course, the right people's arms right now in the race against the variant of concern. In this situation, it makes perfect sense since we have just, you know, a supply chain issue still worldwide, we have that, that we use the doses as first doses first. 
and that we are then really wisely deciding in which situations we would like to have the second doses a bit earlier or a bit later. You only have partial protection after the first dose, not full protection, but you already have protection which is above of what you get when you get a flu shot, for example, which is, again, excellent news. Now, there are certain situations, you know, that you think, okay, it's probably good if we don't wait too long with the second shot. And this is basically the high-risk situations we're all aware of now. That's long-term care homes. Long-term care homes had dramatically higher risks of, of uh, complications and deaths of COVID-19. And there, you know, we see already that quite a lot of people have had both doses. That's great news. There we want to be a bit, you know, we want to play safe because the risk is so high. So we go a bit earlier, I believe, also in the future with the second doses. For the rest of us, you know, we now need to just continue our track, what we're on. And right now, it's great if as many of us uh, as possible can get the first dose. When I say us, I mean people who are at risk. I will come very late in the process. Okay, Brian, I hope that answers your question. Yes, thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, by the way, I think uh, Brian mentioned that he was between 60 and 64, that in the interim, uh, NACI, the immunization panel, decided that AstraZeneca was fine for people over 65. So uh, I think and I would expect that that the younger people will uh, get further behind in the queue because, as we know, the biggest indicator for severe disease and death is age. Um, is that what you'd expect, Dr. Uni? The biggest indicator is age. That's indeed the case. And then, you know, we've talked about that a little bit before um, uh, in another session was that uh, we have 74 neighborhoods in the province that actually have experienced roughly half of all cases of COVID-19. So the, se the second most important factor is neighborhood. And if we now uh, just consider both factors and are a bit more liberal with the age band in those neighborhoods that were most heavily burdened, that also had the highest number of essential workers who worked on all of our behalf, you know, in supermarkets, warehouses, etc., then we're doing the best from both perspectives. We support those and protect those who need it most, but we also contribute to pandemic control in the province. Okay. Um, so, uh, I, as I mentioned uh, in my intro, Dr. Uni, we're coming up on some uh, big holidays for a lot of people. And uh, I know that people uh, say who've got their first shot are very anxious to see their children and grandchildren, you know, um, it, it, under what circumstance is that safe or is there any circumstance? I know people are, you know, seeing them through the window or in the backyard, but um, in terms of seeing them at a holiday. Please stick to the backyard if possible. You know, that's if you have had the first dose, um, then you're partially protected. Um, and and you probably, if this is about your own safety, we need to distinguish that. If this is about your own safety, um, you probably are protected relatively well, 85% or so, against becoming severely ill and ending up in hospital or potentially on an ICU or dying, which is great news. Huh? So. That's good. But the, pro the problem, you know, if you're just partially vaccinated uh, is that uh, still there's, you know, a still a, a residual probability that it could go wrong still, that it could also get more severely ill, even though the protection is already dramatic, again, much better than uh, with the flu shot. Um, but um, the other part is that you, of course, also want you not to contribute to the transmission of the disease to others. So I'm afraid to say as long as we don't have really the, the pandemic under control, and this is not the case right now, things stay as they are for all of those uh, who actually just have had one shot. And this will all change perhaps then also a bit when the Johnson Johnson vaccine is coming in. You're aware of that. This is then a single shot vaccine, which will be great to have. But uh, we're not quite there yet. Okay. I'm going to take a quick call from Marissa and Caledon. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Libby. Thank you. Um, I have a question for Dr. Uni. Um, my brother-in-law lives in a retirement home where all but two people, two residents, have received two do both doses of the vaccine, and yet they are not allowed to leave the residence um, for, well, uh, for any reason other than medical. They're not allowed to go for a walk. They're not allowed to go to the, 
the pharmacy, like everyone else, they're not allowed to like do anything other than the medical reason. Yes, that's a challenge, isn't it? And uh, I, I see where you come from. You know, we uh, we now need to openly discuss these issues. You know, this was really, really hard for elderly people, especially living in retirement homes, in long-term care homes, etc., that, you know, the protective measures that, that people had really became, you know, resulted in people feeling rightly so imprisoned. Yeah, and, he said, uh, that's his word. Exactly. I, he said, I, I, I am I can understand. Is, and I is there a medical reason? Is there a a a, a reason for that other than no. that home wants to protect itself against a lawsuit or something? I think we now need <laughs> to cha- to start to change that. You know, and I'm not the I'm not the geriatrician. I'm a general internist with background. So my colleague Nathan Stoll would be much more adept to talk about that. But from my perspective, if this is a situation where the nursing home residents, nearly all of them, have received vaccines, and you're saying even the second dose, the policies would need to be reconsidered right now. That's for sure the case, you know. It has changed now, um, and uh, it's great what we now know. We've, we've published on that. The science table has published on that. You can see that on our website. We really see an impact of vaccination in long-term care homes, which is tremendous. Paula Rochon and I were talking about that a few days ago, um, and uh, this now also needs to impact the uh, visitor policies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people that they can go out for a walk when it's sunny, that they can enjoy themselves outside. This is all tremendously important now. We're not just, you know, we're not just uh, uh, all about this virus. We all know that. We're social animals. We need to have something that also, you know, is just, you know, soothing our soul here now. And that's really important in this situation. And it's important that uh, now the people there in this uh, facility would also really just reconsider their uh, their approach. Uh, thank so you for that, Dr. Uni. That I like Marissa, uh-huh. I, I have to wrap things up because we're running Yes, thank long. you so much, uh, Dr. Uni. Thank you, Libby, and thank you for your work. Okay. Yeah, you're Bye-bye. very welcome. We're trying. Yes. Okay. We, we appreciate all that you both do. Thank you, and have a great day. Bye. Thanks very much, Marissa. And uh, we'll be following up on that. I'm glad Marissa brought that up, and I can tell you for sure we've talked to Dr. Stahl many times. I'm sure he would say the same thing. And uh, I, I just this whole sector can be so slow to respond. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it, you know, the one thing this has driven home to me is that the, the extent and level of ageism in our society is just is just beyond the pale. You know, do you know what? What really touched me is when I look back to the clinical trials that we have, we have two large clinical trials out there, um, that, that solidarity and recovery that contributed to nearly all our knowledge about therapeutics uh, for a COVID-19. Do you know who designed these trials? Richard Pito, who is 80. Okay, mm-hmm. and when I look into that, you know, some and this this is not a discussion which was dramatic here in this society. This was much worse, you know, in some European countries, including my home country, Switzerland. When I think about that, you know, Richard, an amazing man, you know, he's he's I tell you, he's fit as a fiddle at the age of eighty. Without him, we would all be in trouble because we would have clumsy, small, uh, little trials, and he made it possible. And this man is eighty, so you know, we should remember that when we talk about age, etc., and and all the other aspects. The Americans have Dr. Fauci, who's eighty. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I actually don't know how how uh, old he is exactly, but around that, that's the point. You know. You know, we just all try to do our best and we should stop just, you know, looking at that through any lens, you know, be it age, be it gender, be it ethnicity, whatever. We're just all humans. We're all in the same shoes. We're all struggle right now. And just let's try to do our best. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Uni. And uh, we'll be checking back with you fairly soon. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, people, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, the two Michaels are about to go in on trial in China. Uh, we will get the scoop on that. It looks like a very dire situation. When we were... You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The two Michaels have been jailed in China for 829 days, and they are now about to go on trial. Michael Spavor's date is tomorrow, Friday, in Dindong on the North Korean border. Michael Kovrig will be in court on Monday in Beijing. The experts say guilty verdicts are a foregone conclusion. The timing also may be no accident because the first high-level in-person talks between Beijing and the Joe Biden administration are set to begin in Alaska today. Now, the Canadian government is apparently hoping this attempted reset of U.S.-China relations will open the door for the release of the two Canadians. Uh, So uh, I don't know if hope is a plan there. Let me give you uh, the numbers. If you have a comment on this, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in Chuck Kwan with the Toronto Association for Democracy in China and Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on China-Canada relations. Welcome. Thank you both for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. It's good to be with you, Libby, and hi, Chuck. Hi, Charles. Okay, so um, is 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 that uh, a correct assessment, that a, a guilty verdict is a foregone conclusion? Charles? I would say so. Uh, you know, the Chinese system has a, a body between the police and the courts called the People's Procuratorate. So, you know, in normal cases, the People's Procuratorate assembles all the evidence and ensures it's a strong case before it goes to the court. So that's why you get the 99% conviction rate. Of course, this is not a normal case in that Covington's favor are simply guilty of being Canadians in the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, the prospects of conviction are almost certain. The, the issue is whether this is um, possibly leading to release. In the case of the previous Canadian uh, arrested out of Dandong, Kevin Garrett, who was incarcerated in the same facility where Michael's favor is currently. Um, he had his one-day trial, secret trial. Um, after a few months, the sentence was handed down, and a few days after the five- to eight-year sentence, uh, Mr. Garrett was on a plane back to Canada. So, you know, the optimistic scenario is that we're going to see a repeat with Kovrigan's favor, but there are too many unknowns to really know whether we should be optimistic or not. Okay, so what what kind of a penalty would you expect, at least officially, Chuck, that, that they would get? This is espionage, alleged espionage. Um, the worst case scenario is life in prison. Um, could be 15 years. Or in case of, of uh, another Canadian who is now been, has been in jail for more than 10 years now, uh, Jalil Hussein, he's been sentenced to, I believe, 20 years. So uh, we're not talking about light sentences. And But I want to point out that um, China has upped its game. It's no longer dealing with whether we should be releasing men on, you know, on, on the account of no evidence that, that we will not be extraditing her to the U.S. It's now uh, sort of a going higher up to Biden's move. Basically, they're daring, they're using the hostages as a um, pawn in their negotiation with the U.S., basically the trade and everything else. So, you know, um, unfortunately for Canadians, uh, we are not in, no longer in that game. We're just a minor player in the two giants. Well, oh, that's, that's terrible. Now, uh is that because of a miscalculation? I mean, um, there was that declaration that our government made against uh, uh, arbitrary detention, which sort of sounds to a Canadian ear as, you know, yeah. And the Chinese became incensed and the Americans signed on to that, the new Biden administration. Um, was that a, a miscalculation and the Chinese are just trying to say, okay, you want to go that way? We up the ante. Uh, Charles Burton, am I reading it wrong? I mean, that's a possible reading. Um, it could be also now that Canada, under, I think, pressure from public opinion, is starting to actually do something in response to Kovrigan's favor by rallying nations to our support, um, probably leading to 
some kind of um, international coalition to try and get China to comply with the norms of the international rules-based order. In other words, don't take hostages and don't uh, arbitrarily engage in economic coercion by cancelling trade contracts. That that they recognize that holding Kovrigan's favor is a, a net negative to them. It won't lead to early release of uh, Meng Wanzhou, and it's causing uh, the Canada and China to deteriorate more and more as time goes on. If they do hand down a very heavy sentence, and um, you know, I agree with everything that Chuck says. Although there's also the possibility of death penalty for espionage in China, um, you know that that will simply cause our our relations to get worse and worse, and make it uh, a greater and greater imperative for our government to to collaborate with other nations to constrain China. So, you know, I, I, it's hard to be optimistic, but at least this shows some movement on the file. And it's possible that, in fact, it is on the agenda for the Anchorage meetings and that the United States and, and um, China will work something out. But I think the other point, which is very significant, that, uh, that Chuck raised is because Canada has made no substantive response to China over this, that we are not players in this negotiation because we have nothing on the table. Okay, yes. And and can we rely on the Americans, even with the Biden administration? Most of the things that I've seen suggest that, that in fact, uh, their policy on China is not going to be that different from the Trump administration, so so pretty hardcore, and and Biden, as we know, he's he's uh, quite a bit of a protectionist. Though I have to say, he is really outspoken on on uh, a lot of these issues in terms of international relations. Chuck, I mean, uh, I uh, I believe that Biden's hands are, are tied. I mean, he has his domestic po- uh, audience to worry about, and there are a lot of clamoring for um, being taking a hard line on China, whether it was trade or climate change or whatnot. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, I, I hate to say this, but the, the two Michaels are a little tiny players in, in Biden's sight. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether, I mean, he's a good guy. Obviously, he wants to save Canadians, but I'm, I'm sure that his hands are tied by the system. So, you know, we're, we're in very, <laughs> very, unfortunately, very pessimistic um, you know, uh, situation. I want to go back to your uh, use of the word miscalculation. I, I believe, um, you know, I don't think it's a miscalculation. I mean, if we don't stand up for the rights of, uh, you know, uh, of a nation, uh, we, if we don't stand up to China, uh, either on the genocide issue or on the kind of multilateral, um, you know, dealings with um, um, an arbitrary detention, then who's going to stand up to them? So I, I think I think Canada made the right move. I mean, it's morally right. Uh, it may not be very convenient, but I think uh, you know we somebody has to stand up, and I think Canada was good in getting uh, a multilateral support uh, for their um, arbitrary detention uh, or using people as hostages. Uh, I'm going to take a very quick call because we're almost out of time here, Jamie. In Stratford. Hello, Jamie. Hi, how are you? Fine. Go ahead. Well, we're just sitting around wondering why you said Canada isn't a player in this. Why isn't our prime minister stick his neck out for something valid and save a couple of Canadians? I'll I'll let them answer that uh, because our prime minister doesn't have that much power in this is what I'm hearing. Charles? Well, you know, I, I don't I don't think that we should blame anybody, anybody but the government of China for the horrendous circumstances of Kovrigan's favors incarceration. But I think that both Chuck and I, um, from the beginning, have been urging our government to take a more proactive approach and not rely on Chinese goodwill and, uh, and good sense in dealing with these matters, because the nature of that regime is that they only, they only respond to to firmness, they they when they see weakness, they simply take more advantage. So, I, I think that our government's policy on this matter has not been effective. In that, you know, they've been held now for these eight hundred and twenty some days, and unreleased and quiet diplomacy has not had any results. So, I think it's time for us to do a serious reassessment of well, the terms of engagement with China, and uh, you know, 
make those changes necessary to try and get things back on the right track. Uh, a final question. We've been really nice to Meng Wanzhou. She lives in a mansion. Her family got special permission to come here. Uh, should we uh, maybe tighten up on, on that, Chuck? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's the optics. I, I certainly wear the good Boy Scouts. We play by the rule. Uh, I, you know, the, the headline today says uh, the lawyers are, are, are suing or are saying that her rights are, are, are disregarded frequently disregarded. So, you know, they can play the game, but we, you have to understand that we're dealing with a monster. So any standards that we set for ourselves, rule of law, being courteous, being di- diplomatic, doesn't apply in terms of Sino-Canadian relationship. And, and Charles is right. On day one, we said, you have to have your spine. I mean, unfortunately, it leads to that. I mean, I'm not sure if we stood up to China on day one, we would achieve anything better, but at least we try. So this is the only, I I think, I believe the lessons that uh, we have to take away from this. Uh, So they're going on trial Friday and Monday. Uh, Are you saying that we will not hear the sentence immediately thereafter? Uh, That that would be the normal practice and delay before sentencing is handed down. And we won't have any information about the trial because the Chinese will be keeping it secret on the basis that it impinges on matters of Chinese national security. And and there is a precedent that the sentence, a sentence is pronounced, but but uh, the prisoners are released anyway. Well, that happened in the case of Kevin Garrett, I think, for political reasons. Um, you know, he was he was picked up for no reason in retaliation for um, Canada responding to a U.S. extradition request for a man called Sue Bin, who um, was guilty of serious crimes of purloining Boeing aerospace data and transferring them to the Chinese state. Mr. Su decided to go to, to, to take a plea bargain with the United States and freely went back to the states where he, um, where he cooperates now with uh, U.S. intelligence. Um, you know, it would be awfully nice if Ms. Meng would decide that she should just go to the U.S. to defend herself uh, through the due process of law that's allowed there, and that would... Uh, eliminate the Canadian factor in this awful situation. Boy. Uh, Chuck Kwan, uh, I'll give you the last word. Um, what are you expecting? Um, I don't think we should expect anything other than what we have just told you. Uh, basically, it's a sham. Uh, just for your audience as well, um, you know, um, when you talk about defense lawyers, you know, these are government-assigned lawyers, and their employer is the Chinese government. So, and many lawyers have been uh, disbarred by daring to defend human rights defenders yeah. in China in the, in the past. So you can expect, you can not expect any defense, law, legal defense uh, on, on behalf of the two Canadians. So uh, pretty much it's going to go China's way. And the only thing we can hope for is a diplomatic breakthrough uh, in which both sides, uh, either side would not lose any face. And what right now, China is sticking to his guns, that, uh, and they do not want Meng Wanzhou to admit to any guilt at all, so uh, I, even for plea bargaining and whatnot. So, so this is certainly, uh, uh, we're in a dicey situation. Okay, I've got to wrap things up. Thank you so much for your insights, Chuck Kwan and Charles Burton. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have. Free for All Friday, the original, the long-running, the very best Free for All Friday coming up tomorrow, and we'll take more of your calls and your questions, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.